Hi, I'm Paul Ford. I'm the co-founder of Postlight, and this is Track Changes, our official podcast. And I am joined by my co-founder, Rich Ziotti. We've got a great guest today, Paul. Who is our guest, Rich? Nicholas Carr. Oh, we got to talk to him. He is suspicious. He's going into I told you so mode. Yeah, I mean, it's a tricky <laughs> time. So look, um, but we, we should talk about two things before we talk about yes. or talk with Nick. Yes. Okay. The first one we should talk about is that we're going somewhere. We're actually going to leave the building, and that's a big deal. It's a so big deal for us. Everyone. We don't necessarily love to travel. It's not our strong suit. We had three meetings before we decided to go somewhere. It's hard for us to buy plane tickets to go schmooze. Yeah. But we're going to a conference, uh, what's it called? The NUCO Shift Forum, which is hosted by our friends at NUCO, who actually hired us at one point to launch a website. They were an early client. Yep. And the Shift Forum is an executive conference on capitalism at a crossroads. And boy, is it at a crossroads right now. <laughs> so uh, we're going to be in San Francisco from February 6th to 8th. We'll, we'll let people know about it in the newsletter and, and here. And we're going to be happy attendees at that event. If you want to talk to us at that event, just come up and say hello. I'm the very large, tall graying fellow and rich is how do we describe you um you know it may not work this way i think yeah. it's probably better if they people email us oh that's at a good hello idea. at postlight.com that they're at the event which is at the saint regis hotel in san francisco oh, good problem solving or if you'd like to meet up we've been talking about making it out to the bay area for a while and there's a lot of people we would love to talk to but uh, if you want to meet up, we're not going to be at that conference every minute of the conference. Yeah, we'll go. We go for we'll coffee, out. meet a bunch of people at once, or if you have something to talk with us about, do absolutely. Uh, whether it's salesy or jobby, or just if you want to check in, we'll do our best. Yes, we love to talk. And uh, so that's February sixth to eighth in San Francisco. Paul Ford and Rich Ziotti. This is your chance to connect. We'll sign to autographs too. I know. Paul. I'll give you any, anything you want. Um, <laughs> so that. Is pretty markety, but we have even more markety stuff to market when we market our markety selves. Well, we always have stuff to market, but this is just something that um, something cool happened. Something cool happened. Um, you know, we launched a Chrome, a Google Chrome extension. One of those um, little things that lives in the top right corner of your Chrome browser. Correct. Uh, called Mercury Reader, uh, and it's built on top of the Mercury platform, which we should explain about in a minute. But uh, the adoption has been amazing. Uh, Mercury Reader, by the way, it's worth noting, is a descendant of readability. It is a brand new ground up code base that parses web pages and makes them very readable. It's a product of Postlight Labs. You go to a web page and it's filled with stuff and it's long and you don't know where the story begins and ends. And you tap the little rocket ship for Mercury in your Chrome browser and suddenly, seriously, a well-designed, very simple version of that page appears. Yes. And it's good for people who have accessibility issues. It's good for people who have uh, just a desire for a clean, clear reading experience. So the reason we're talking about it is that it got to how many? Uh, at this moment, over 1.2 million 
installations. I think it's up to 1.3. I think it might be. Yeah. Um, so 1.3 million human beings, or some division of that, it's it's always hard to tell with web stuff. Thing, yeah. Have installed it and are using it, and it's it, it launched with a little bit of a head start. We had a couple hundred thousand people in there for readability. Yep. And then it just kept going. This is. Ironically, given that its logo is a rocket ship, kind of a rocket ship in Chrome plug-in terms. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's uh, definitely... I mean, Chrome extensions is definitely a niche world. Yeah, like the one for Microsoft Office has like 2.4 million installs or something it's like not, that. It's not massive, yeah. So this this brings Chrome to parity with Safari, which has the reader function. Yes, one, especially if you're on iOS mobile, you notice it. You can get that similar view. get that view. reader view, yeah. So I think a lot of people love Chrome. Chrome is a great browser it's my browser of choice and they're used and to, to have that functionality finally be there uh, if as far as we know and we did some research there really isn't any other extension that bothers to do this it's real fast it runs in the browser it runs um, in the browser has shortcut keys it's really cool so yeah. it's free go check it out and we're very proud of the team how do they check it, it out happen. uh if you just go to the chrome web store and type in Postlight Mercury. That'll work. Or you, Mercury. You, just type in Mercury. And you can also go to mercury.postlight.com. You can go to mercury.postlight.com. You're looking for Mercury Reader. That's yep. the name of it. Also, there is the Mercury Toolkit, which is an API ecosystem that's out there. Uh, it's a, a an automated Google AMP converter uh, that's out there and that you can, is also seeing an amazing adoption. Well, and you can Thousands also, of API keys. You can around. use this thing to parse pages and turn them into a more usable format. So... People build things like web spiders. and um, They use it for migration. They use it for research. That happens fact. a lot in our world. Like people will, a, a healthcare company will be migrating a million old web pages from their like. That's right. All over the place into a new format. Yes. And we're the, we're the shortest path. So that's what's up with Mercury. It's yeah. And thank you to the 1.3 or so million people who are checking it out. And thank you to the team that made it happen from soup to nuts, from the technology to the design. Uh, it's really great. Work. Yeah, it's a, it's a product of Postlight Labs. And if you poke around on track changes, we'll put the link in in the newsletter post for this podcast. But if you poke around, you'll see there's a big write-up on the design by uh, Matt Quintanilla, our director of design. And uh, it's worth reading. There's a lot, of, a lot of work under the hood to make these things happen. And just as much work to make them look good and, and feel good. Yep. So that's a lot of marketing. Let's talk to Nick Carr. Mm-hmm. Sounds like a plan? Sounds great. All right, let's, let's talk to him. Nick, hi. Hi. Hello. Hi. Nick Carr, thank you for being on, on Track Changes. Uh, I just want to cover I mean, Nick is a writer. He's been, he writes on the internet, continues to somewhat write on the internet. We used to write a lot more on the internet, as, as many of us did. He's written a, a handful of books. His most recent book is called Utopia is Creepy. So... He's just kind of all bets are off at this point. He, the, the, the title is it is what it is. Before that, in 2014, he wrote The Glass Cage, How Our Computers Are Changing Us. Before that, he wrote The Shallows, What the Internet is Doing to Our Brains. This is 2011. And before that, he wrote The Big Switch, Rewiring the World from Edison to Google. If you look at the titles of these books, there's almost a narrative just across the titles, which I think is is kind of interesting. Nick, welcome. Thanks. Thanks, Rich. It's good to talk to you. I hope that was a glowing <laughs> intro. I was aiming for a glowing intro. It was pretty good. Okay. <laughs> not complaining. Okay. But so I, why is Utopia creepy? Let's start there. Let's start there. 
Well, I, the title is, is meant to work on a couple of levels. One, a general level about portrayals of utopia in art and in fiction and uh, even in kind of social conversation. They all, when you experience them, they all, even though they're intended to produce this feeling of this glowing paradise, they end up being repellent because Utopia requires us to get rid of all of our flaws, all of our nasty emotions. And what ends up is everybody starts acting like robots. And then I, I also try to make a more particular point about the promises that have been made about the Internet and the web and social media over the last 10, 15 years um, since the post crash arrival of what was what used to be called Web 2.0. And, and these these portrayals kind of imply that by connecting everybody more closely, we'll have this worldwide harmony breakout and democratic forces will will free the media to give lots of lots more viewpoints and stuff. And if you look at all these promises that were made back in 2005 and that have continued since then, the best you can say is everything is much more complicated than we thought it would be. And the worst you can say is pretty much the opposite has happened. And all of the beautiful predictions for what the web would do have kind of been turned on their head in actual practice. What do you think the motivation was for those predictions? I mean, the, the easiest answer would be economic upside. Let's tell everyone that things are going to be great because then they'll buy my product. But is there anything else going on? Yeah, no, I thought I, I think there was a genuine frustration with media and with communications and with economics. And there was this sense that if we connect everybody and, and open up access to information much more broadly than it used to be, that everything would get better and that, you know, a virtual world would solve the problems inherent in a physical world. So I, I don't think it, particularly in the beginning, when a lot of the, these promises were made, not just by entrepreneurs, but from social critics, academics, uh, economists, I think it was a, a genuine excitement. And, and I have to say, I shared it as well for quite a long time. I mean, <laughs> it, was, it was amazing to suddenly be able to log on and have unlimited amounts of information at your fingertips to be able to, you know, publish your own blog or whatever. And so I think it was both economic interest. And I think that became more pronounced as, as social media started to generate huge amounts of money. And, uh, but I think in the beginning, it was this genuine feeling that, that we were on you know, the, the doorstep of a, of a new world. And you just can't help but think that you know, progress and, and just advancement, like a computer that goes four times faster than one that was built two years ago or three years ago, and the ability to you know, call my relatives that are 7,000 miles away and have a, have a video call with them, is just the technical achievement of it, I think makes well, that's you sort a real, of, it's a significant pleasure. It feels like magic. You get to see the, your, feels like your cousin's new baby in your hand as you walk down the street in Manhattan. Exactly. You know, that's what Verizon was promising us in 2000. <laughs> right. We were going to be able to fax from the beach. It was going to be great. Yeah. Right. Exactly. So, and there are some amazing things that feel magical. Oh, yeah. and I, uh, I mean, we don't all spend all day you know, looking at our phone because it's miserable. <laughs> it's, it, it's something that draws us in. It's diverting. There's a lot of pleasure involved. But one way to think about it is, you know, originally the personal computer was this incredible multifunctional tool uh, that progressed very quickly and 
you know, you bought new applications, you, you installed them on your hard drive, and it gave you new capabilities, and then you uh, started to connect to first, you know, CompuServe or America Online or whatever, and then the internet, and it was really amazing, and, and it was kind of built for individuals to use as they saw fit, and, and to install and own these tools and the data. In around 2005, I think personal computing changed. It, it went from being a product business, a tool-making business, to a media business. And suddenly, we weren't in charge of things anymore. And we began, if you look at how it's progressed since then, it's still lots of amazing capabilities, but it's it's much more centralized. It's much more uh, about you know collecting information about us. And I think something fundamentally has changed, and we've lost a lot of that, what I think was the best thing about personal computing, which was that it was this incredible array of tools that we could pick and choose from and use to fulfill our own purposes. Now it feels very, very much like the medium of the computer or the smartphone is kind of controlling our attention and controlling our thoughts and and giving us lots of pleasure along the way, but it feels kind of oppressive to me. So we're consumers. We've become more right. and more of our time is is dominated by consumption, rather which is than... precisely the opposite of what was promised from you know Web 2.0 and social media and stuff. That that we would become quote unquote prosumers and and we would take charge of production rather than being consumers. Now we're we produce a lot of stuff, <laughs> but it makes money for the for the Facebooks and Googles of the world, and we end up in a more passive consuming mode, even, I would argue, when we're sending out messages or tweets or whatever. But you know what I think is tricky here is that these are now these global computing, global social platforms. The promise of the personal computer was that utopian promise that everybody would become more creative, more empowered, you know, very sort of whole earth catalog, we are as gods kind of stuff. But to have a, a giant product that everybody wants to hold in their pocket, like most people don't create. They, they like to consume. So if I'm a giant technology company and I want to grow and grow and grow, which is my whatever reason, you know, st- whether it's my stockholders or my, uh, ego. my hubris, my ego, or, <laughs> or just my hunger, I don't see another way. Like I'm not that interested in enabling people to become that much more powerful. I want to give them more tools, you know, to like to buy and consume content and kind of hope that the rest of it works out. I think you've just laid out (laughs) exactly the business model that's become the dominant one. It's to give people kind of an illusion of freedom, an illusion of choice, but direct their attention in ways that allow you to collect more information about them and feed them more advertisements and and keep them basically hooked on their on their screen, on their phone. You know what's interesting with this is is you, 2005 was an, kind of the end of the pure Windows era. And remember, you'd buy a Windows machine and it would come with AOL as an icon on the desktop and you couldn't get rid of it. And it drove everybody crazy and everybody hated it. And then Apple shows up with a device that you hold in your hand that has AT&T built in and you can't control it in any way. And everyone just started to go, it's so simple. It's so great. Right. It's the same thing, but it just got packaged so much better. And now, 10 years later, here we are. Well, let's face it. I mean, copy and paste on the phone didn't come until like five years. It's after still not. It doesn't, it still doesn't work. It still doesn't work. It's not it's real. Horrible. Yeah. Right. So 
it is a consumption device. I mean, I think I, to me, there were two milestone events that kind of changed the game. One was always being connected. I, I'm old enough to remember when it was a big deal to dial on to the internet. It was expensive and I didn't have it in my pocket. So I had to get back to my 486 and sit down on a computer and, and dial in on my DSL or whatever I had for internet. So my time was value. Like I thought about my time. And I wasn't always sitting in front of my computer in my bedroom. You know, I only had it certain periods of time. So I think those two things, always being connected and having that thing in your pocket where the interface, I mean, everybody kept banging at this problem, right? And nobody got it until Apple got it with the touchscreen. And, and yeah, he threw a keyboard at you, which was at the bottom half of the, of the glass display. But it was really about consumption, right? And then you had in the background this thing growing like a weed, which was Facebook. And it was really a perfect storm in many ways, as I see it. Um, now, one of the things I, I, I cringe at is when I start to think of big companies as evil. I think it's a ridiculous... I don't think that's what anybody's saying. No, I, I know, just, I know, a, but I think... They have their own motivations that are separate from which empowering are, Which are normal motivations, yeah. right? You know, I, admire, I look at and I admire a company like Medium, for example, because I feel like the company is almost like a counter argument. It's trying to do something else, for Christ's sake, for a minute, so that you're not staring at baked ziti getting cooked in 30 seconds on a Facebook page. It's giving me a little more respect, in a way. Are there platforms, are there services that you, you look at, Nick, and say, oh, geez, thank God, somebody's going in this direction a little bit? Well, you mentioned how <laughs> how WordPress just kind of sits unused on your <laughs> yeah. on your computer. I still think of WordPress, which I use for my blog. I mean, I've gone from you know blogging probably three posts a day to three posts a month, maybe over time, and I, you know, but I still think that a tool like WordPress, which first of all makes publish individual publishing very easy, but it also doesn't impose much on you. It, you retain control. To me, that remains kind of an, of an ideal. Now, there's no doubt that, well, I shouldn't say there's no doubt. I mean, a lot of people still publish good blogs. They tend to become much more specialized over time. But that is, I think, going against the grain of what goes for progress online, which is much more about kind of reducing all discourse to banter because that's quick, that, that's easy, that doesn't, you know, if you're a Google or a Facebook, and I'm not saying they're evil, I'm not quite sure about Facebook, I'm, I'm pretty sure Google is not evil, but <laughs> they, they don't, their economic interest is to keep you moving very, very quickly and consuming lots of information in short bursts. They don't want contemplative thought, they don't want you to uh, sit on one you know, piece of information a long time and then go away and think about it that because they're not, yeah, they <laughs> they're not making any money at that point. Right. And so they tell themselves, I think, that, oh, the more activity there is, then that has to be better and people are grabbing information. But I think they're kidding themselves. I, I mean, I think they're they're very much at this point, particularly Google is kind of has been in a self-justifying mode for a long time and refuses to kind of even consider the fact that that a lot of what they're doing actually has negative consequences for people's lives, for the way they think, for the way they communicate. So I, 
I think the old model of giving power to individuals, creative power, you know, some people are, are out there still taking advantage of it, thank goodness. But I think that both at a business level and at a technical level, the momentum of the digital world is very much going in a different direction. Now, what kind of changes would you like to see? I mean, do you think that there are we doomed? Are we just going to be good <laughs> consumers? Or is there a path that we should be taking? If I'm, What should individuals be doing? I think individuals should be carefully assessing their relationship to their phones, <laughs> to their smartphone. And this is pretty clear from, from when I look at my own behavior to when I look at others' beha- behavior and when I look at you know, the, the studies that are done on people's behavior, people have become very, very dependent on their smartphone to the extent that they have anxiety and panic when their phone isn't near them or when their phone, when the battery goes dead. I, I mean, you know, one thing you see all the time today is people kind of scouting out power outlets as if, you know, the role of human beings is to keep our smartphones going. And I think that's, I, I think that's, ultimately an unhealthy and a destructive dependency in that if if we could go back at least a little bit to thinking about computers, including our phones, as tools that are in our power, that I, th- I think we'd ultimately have a healthier relationship with them. We'd be able to leave them at home or turn them off and, and kind of go out and do other things. Again, that, that might be seen as kind of a naive or quixotic kind of belief, but I, I do think if we're going to have a better system, it begins with people thinking a little more carefully about how how this technology is influencing their moment by moment behavior and whether it's enriching their lives or having the opposite effect. And once that happens, I think then if people begin to change their view and behavior, then software developers will naturally respond to that. But I think it has to begin with and I don't rule this out because I think it's possible we'll see a countercultural movement against constant connectivity. But I, I do think it has to begin with the consumer uh, and then flow out from there because I don't think there's much incentive for a company like Facebook to go in a different direction at this yeah, point. Yeah, like take a break. Like a little, well, see, a little box comes up. I'm even more pessimistic here because I think what the way things are going, if if there was a movement, let's say – five percent of expected consumers starting to leave stuff at home the immediate focus would be to create some little device that you wear like on your wrist or gets implanted into your neck through a tranquilizer dart that gives you little updates it buzzes or it it lets you know where your friends are yeah like there's such a there's a pressure to get smaller and more embedded than the phone that makes me feel that maybe this the horse left the barn or the cow or whatever animal leaves the barn yeah yeah, I mean, I I agree with you. And if I'm more optimistic than you, Paul, that would be amazing. But, <laughs> it, but I do think that there, what we always see is in modern society that you get some kind of dominant culture. And then, it's and it's always young people who revolt against it, but then you get this uh, movement by the young to kind of reject that culture. And I think at this point, the, what I'll call the digital culture, you can call it anything you want, is so dominant and it's not a youth culture. It's it's very much an adult culture, I think, that I do think it's possible we'll see a rejection of it by hmm. young people at some point. No, it's true. We talk about it as being something associated with teens. Like there's just this endless obsession with teens. But it's gray-haired dads and moms just as much. 
Yeah, right. I, I don't know if that generation's come in yet. I feel like it may not be this generation. It may be the next one I think that it will decides be. that, hey, this is ridiculous. You like, know, when I grew let's go up, hiking. they were obsessed with kids watching too much TV when I grew up. And they yeah. were like, don't watch so much TV. And I was like, okay. And I didn't watch that much TV. I got a computer. Right. And um, I have two five-year-olds. I have five-year-old twins. They're not actually that interested in my phone. Yeah. It's, yeah. Sometimes it makes me sad because they bring it to me when I'm sitting quietly. They're like, oh, Dad, you need your phone. Oh, that is depressing. It's horrible. <laughs> yeah, it's just. It is really sad. Yeah, it is. And then I, then I sit there and check Twitter when they bring it to me. But the, yeah. um, so I think that's possible. I think there is, there could be a new generation that just doesn't care. The thing that bugs me is that, and this is, again, back to the motives of very large, truly media companies, they have to fill their attention hole somehow or they can't yeah. get paid. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's the model. You've got such a massive devaluation of what an advertising unit is. And then you have technology that's willing to go endless for you. So let's just open the fire hose and the four, you know, it all kicks in. So it's like, hey, yeah, so what? It's .001 penny. We'll give you 300 of them. Well, that's if we better pray to God that Facebook can keep its valuation with what's coming or otherwise we're, we're just... Right, exactly. Like, we're all right. going to get chips in our face. <laughs> right. And and it's true. I, I mean, the, the goal of media companies has always been to capitalize on the audience's attention, but they've, until the arrival of constant connectivity and a, and a powerful computer device that's on a person's person all the time, they haven't had... It's only recently that that actually has become a real opportunity to actually capitalize on people's attention from the moment they wake up to the moment they go to sleep. And then if they if you have insomnia at three in the morning, you're going to grab your phone so you can get it then, too. So it, it's a natural progression of the media industry, but it's a kind of leap <laughs> to this kind of domination and control over people's attention that that, as I say, I don't think is is particularly healthy. That's true. We've eliminated the air gap. There used to be a little space where you had to subscribe to the magazine or whatever. And So zooming out a little bit, I want to talk a little bit about the sort of, and maybe these aren't, there isn't direct causation here, but just the, the macro effects. I mean, give me your thoughts as you were watching the last 12 months of media in the United States as this election was unfolding, right? And and I'm I'm obviously leading the witness here a little bit. Yeah. But you know, I think I think we saw in I started off by talking about how lots of the effects of digital communication, digital media have been the opposite of what people expected. And I think we saw that very clearly with political discourse during the the primaries and then the presidential campaign. And in two things in particular. One is that instead of people going deep when they have unlimited amounts of information and messages available to them, they get very caught up in short bursts of information. It's kind of, we thought the internet might cure soundbite culture, but I think it's made it even worse. Um, that people simply are so distracted and so interrupted by notifications and alerts that they begin to take in information in a very emotional way, in a very rational way. And so it gives somebody like Donald Trump on Twitter the ability to control the news cycle in a very dramatic way. And we're still seeing that, of course, even more so during the transition. So on the one hand, I think we saw the loss of context 
which requires you to pay attention, to back away from the stream of information, to reflect on things uh, in order to fit incoming bits of information into a broader context. I think, I think we saw the destruction of context. So every little message began to control people's minds and their opinions in a very emotional rather than a rational way. And then the other thing is, we also thought that by having unlimited amounts of information, people would broaden their perspectives, they'd kind of dig into alternative views, they'd kind of discuss <laughs> discuss issues from many points of view. And what we saw instead is that you give people endless amounts of information, they're going to gravitate toward the information that reinforces their existing biases, that will make those biases even stronger, and you'll get this polarization of people. Um, and I think we saw both of those things, kind of a shallowing of the discourse in a polarization of the discourse, people not listening to each other. In the media, the kind of traditional media, I think was was caught in the whirlwind and didn't really know what to do. And I still don't think they, they know what to do. Yeah. You know, I, there was a, I think it was George Washington who came out against political parties. And the idea was that America would, the laws of America would be formed by people rationally discussing and figuring out what the best strategy was for the Republic and then parties show up and you kind of get a big preset raft of ideas that you can jump into. It's packaged. It's packaged. And the internet was the same. It was the idea was we would have this intense, immense civil discourse and come to an almost like post-government strategy. There's this great and slightly ridiculous John Perry Barlow document where he, you know, sort of says, get out of here, governments. We're right. done with you. And it's a declaration of independence for cyberspace is what it's called. And I think we just saw in the last 20 years that whole implosion happen again. And we're just looking at a, syst a party system has arisen. And it's like alt-right on one side and Twitter left on the other plus <laughs> Tumblr. And it's viciously at war. And now the larger party superstructure has started to soak it in. Right. Yeah. And and so we're back where we started, but maybe worse in some ways. We have right. Wikipedia, too. I mean, there's good trade-offs here. Yeah. I don't know a lot about the early history of media and newspapers. If I'm not mistaken, I think the word is muckrakers. Like when the early newspapers started, the, the ethics and sort of guidelines and even the legal boundaries for the press weren't really sorted out yet. So That's you had this kind of ridiculous, almost fantastical kind of approach to telling the news where where you just sort of, it was just bananas. And you just, and we somehow came out of that. And then the Washington Post showed up and the, and the New York Times and a few big Supreme Court cases landed. And we sort of came out of the stupor, so to speak. You would think at that, in the middle of that, right, that we were all going down. I would, like, you've got these tools that are going to just fool everybody. And the, the power structure would sort of run these things and, and trick us all. Uh, but we somehow came out of it. And I'm by default an optimist. So <laughs> I'm just going to assume, well, I'm not going to assume much, but I'm going to follow the, the thinking that, you know, we're not going to get fooled again. But again, I don't have a lot to back that up. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think you're right that, you know, there, there was never this golden age of <laughs> a deeply thoughtful, you know, mass population, you know, hashing out differences and, and, yeah. and, and stuff. On the other hand, there was never, I think 
what's different and what's concerning is that, yeah, there was plenty of muckraking in newspapers and other places, but there was still this kind of rhythm to people's intellectual lives where, yeah, maybe you'd spend part of an hour or so looking through newspapers or stuff, but then you'd be forced back onto yourself where you're in some kind of thoughtful mode where you weren't constantly distracted and you actually had to think about things and, and maybe, you know, read long, longer things. And, and what worries me is that we're so inundated with not just with, you know, going out and grabbing information, but with having information pour through us through notifications and alerts and everything that, that I worry that we've crowded out the room for people to be Right. to be attentive and thoughtful and contemplative and all the things you need to build up kind of personal knowledge and in personal context. So, Right, the IV needle is in right. your arm so it seems, all day long. It seems like something has changed. And, and I hope you're right that, you know, we, maybe we're at kind of peak stupidity at the moment. And That's the title. You got the next book title, <laughs> Nick. Free of charge. You know, I think we'll... I think we'll probably find that it's like anything, it's a wave. As long as the world's here, these yeah. weird immune systems arise, like we were talking about earlier, yeah. where maybe the next generation isn't as compelled by yeah. the, by screens, but they might be in their self-driving cars just right. tootling around. Um, right. I mean, Nick, you've got here a software company, and we're listening. Like, what should we be thinking as we're building stuff? Yeah. Well, in the the book I wrote before – the latest one, the glass cage. It, it's about automation, which in automation, not only in the workplace, but in our lives as in our leisure time, in our in our lives as people who go through the world and do stuff. I think there's no doubt that more and more of our days are getting scripted, more and more of our activities are getting scripted by software writers because we are always connected. And I think the argument I make is that we've fallen victim to what some people call technology-centered automation, which means the software developer says, what can the computer do? And everything the computer can do, I'll have the computer do. And whatever's left over, that will be what the human being does. And that seems to me a recipe, and I think there's pretty clear evidence for this, for de-skilling people, for, for pushing people to the sidelines of uh, the activities they do at work and in their leisure time to the point where we're not getting experience, we're not facing challenges, because of course what software writers really want to do is find any place that takes time or uh, burns productivity and, and represents a challenge and then automate it so it makes our lives easier. And I think ultimately that is a recipe for a loss of talent, for increasing passiveness, um, and ultimately for for dissatisfaction in our lives, because a lot of I think psychological you know, studies show a lot of the pleasure we get is, is actually through developing rich talents, facing challenges and overcoming them. And so there's this tension between the software design philosophy that says make everything as easy and convenient as possible and the, source, the deep sources of human satisfaction. So what I would like to see is, is software developers begin to think about ways to develop software that actually puts human talent in unique human skills at the center and then says, how can, how can the computer, how can the software kind of complement these skills rather than replace them, complement them, deepen them, challenge them? There's no doubt that 
human beings are flawed thinkers. We have our own biases and there's lots of things that data and software can do to challenge us. But we have to, uh, I think we have to switch the fundamental, our fundamental approach to software development and put ourselves ahead of the computer. Is it, isn't that video games? Video games is probably the best example. <laughs> I mean, video games, and by the way, that video games can become problematic in that they begin to become manipulative because they know how yeah. to kind of keep people feeding at the trough. Oh, yeah, the most lucrative it. video games yeah. are problematic. I mean, if you look at, you know, good video games, what you see is a very kind of deep appreciation for the fact that people like to be challenged and they like to develop their skills and then they like to move on to the next challenge and the next challenge. Outside of video games, though, that kind of insight into human psychology and human satisfaction is almost lost entirely. It's not about figuring out how to how to keep people challenged and developing skills. It's about how to relieve people of challenge. <laughs> and, and as a result, and I don't think this is necessarily by design, but as a result, you begin to see a loss of talent, a loss of skill. The ideal thinking about software or automation or mechanization is that every time you relieve a human being of some challenge or some chore, the, the human being will jump up to a higher level of challenge, a higher level of skill. But in reality, it, that isn't the dynamic uh, that we often see if you look at, say, pilots as they adapt to ever more automated autopilot run flight. They're not gaining higher level skills. They're becoming computer operators. And in fact, when they have to take over in an emergency, you see a loss of skills that often has tragic consequences. And I, I think we see this with ourselves in becoming dependent on Google Maps to get around. It doesn't give us a greater skill in navigation. It, it reduces us to you know, people without navigational skills who become passive consumers of Google Maps or GPS instructions or whatever. So I think we're as we push forward, and as you know, as Mark Andreessen said, as software eats the world, we have to really <laughs> think about what role people are going to have, and whether we're going to move into a world that's really designed for us or designed for robots, in which we become the kind of backup system in case something goes wrong. Interesting. How how many hours of a day do you spend on your computer slash phone? Um, quite. A few. Are you on Facebook? No. Really? I have a Facebook account. In fact, numerous Facebook I, accounts for if I need to do research or something. But I'd say I'm signed into Facebook maybe 10 minutes a month. Wow. Do you have friends on Facebook? Uh, well, if I was, yeah. And so, so you I'd like something. to friend you I, on I, Facebook, Nick. <laughs> One thing you learn when you if you're not on Facebook, is that nobody wishes you happy birthday anymore. So it's kind of distressing. But, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's distressing or wonderful. It sounds great. Yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's strange. But I think what I've learned is that we're all, we're all drawn to streams of information. And, and this is you know, pretty clear from the psychological studies. We do have this deep instinct to want to know everything that's going on uh, particularly if sure. there's any kind of social nature to the information. And, and I feel that myself. And so I've just decided that the only way for me to carve out some time <laughs> where I can actually, you know, not be attracted to screens and not be distracted and, and so forth is to, is just to just say no. 
and I think Facebook, for all the benefits it has, Facebook is very much designed to turn us into lab rats going after these morsels of uh, informational food. And the only way I can I can counter that is just not participating. Wow. When you're away from the screen, what do you do? Um, That's, let's I, pause for a second and just... Reflect on how insane that question is. This, here we are, right? Like if this was 1963 and you heard that question in the future, it would be the world's upside down. Think about right. that. Yeah, sure. <laughs> I don't um, know. At that point, they were talking about kids being addicted to TV, though. Yeah. 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 Well, you didn't, you, they, I mean, the difference was you didn't, they didn't carry a TV around in their pocket all day long. So. True. So there were limits to the addiction just by the nature of right. the technology and the nature of the day. I, you know, I, I read, I go outside, I hike. I live in Colorado. There are a lot of trails around. So there's there's plenty of opportunities to go out and, and do stuff. You know, I, I'm not presenting myself as some kind of model for a person who's figured this out because I, I spend a lot of time, you know, looking at a screen. And, and some of that, I think, is very productive. I mean, I'm a nonfiction writer. I can get a lot done. Uh, through tools like Google that would used to take a lot of time and a, and a lot of nuisance. So I'm not by any means kind of dismissing the power of the tools that we still have and even things like Google. But I do think that, and this probably makes me a nostalgist, but I, I still think that the best computer is the desktop computer where actually you can get up and walk out of a room and then you're away from it and, and you have to choose when you go back. And so most of my time, I spend very, actually very little time on, on, on my smartphone. Most of it is still with a desktop because I, I find that that model of computing is still my ideal, that there are tools here that I can use to get things done that I, that I want to get done, but I can get up and walk away. That's a very specific kind of Luddite philosophy, which is revert <laughs> to your desktop computer. Well, I think I he's, know, he's, trying to, he's trying to control it, right? I no, mean, I agree. I understand. Like I'm in control. I, you know, I set the boundaries here. I, I, this is a tangible thing. I don't know what's going to happen or if anything will happen that causes sort of this tipping point moment where like we're talking about this and we're a small podcast and we're self-proclaimed intellectuals and whatnot. But let's face it. When does this break out onto the cover of People magazine as a thing, as a, as a real tangible like in, something that people are talking about in barbershops. Like, I don't know when how celebrities when care happens. about it. When is that what it is? Yeah, sure. Celebrities? Sure. Well, I do think there is a kind of level of concern that's out in the population, out in celebrity culture, that there's this kind of generalized worry that, boy, maybe I'm giving, you know, the gadgets and the companies that program the gadgets too much power over my moment by moment life. And maybe it is. Uh, reducing my thoughtfulness and making me a scatterbrain and and so forth. But the real question is, does that does that general kind of anxiety, low level anxiety, actually get to the point where people start changing their behavior? And I I don't see any sign of that. I don't rule it out, as I said before. But yeah, at some deep level, we love our phones. We love the flow of data. We love we love gathering information. Even even when it becomes pernicious, we still love it. Famously, Anna Wintour and Beyonce had flip phones. Right. 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 That's, yeah. But they have people to check the internet for them. I feel like this is a Matt Damon move or a 
DiCaprio. Movie. That's right. They're just going to come out with a 40-minute documentary and tell me my brain is a bowl of oatmeal. Or maybe you'll not. get a DiCaprio phone, and it just shows you <laughs> pictures of him. <laughs> scenes from Titanic. Hours a day. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay, Nick, I mean, this was uh, really, really interesting. Glad we got to dive into it a little bit. Uh, you know, it's it's funny. Uh, obviously, we don't have all the answers, but I think the fact that we're having a conversation about it is really good. And the fact that we're technologists having a conversation. I about like it the challenge really of good. of empowering and skill preservation in terms of software. That's something for us to think about. That is a great. You know, that starts to take us out of critic mode and into production. Production, and not just that. That this is, could potentially be a great thing, right? There's, That's yeah. right. You know. I mean, there is, I think there is this sense of, sometimes this sense of inevitability about the design decisions people make, whether it's, whether it's software design or, or product design or whatever. And, and actually, there are always alternatives. And to the extent that people like you are in the business, you know, say, gee, maybe we could go about this in a different way. Maybe we could take a hint from some of the better video games or whatever. I, you know, I think that's all to the good. Interesting. Cool. Well, thank you so much for doing this, Nick. We're still a digital product studio, Paul, and we, we still, are. our services We're. are still available. <laughs> right, but we, we engage in a critical manner, and people who yes. also want to engage in a critical manner should right. go out and buy a copy of Utopia's Creepy and, <laughs> and think some thoughts, damn yes. it. That's, yes. what, that's what we're here for. Thank you so much, Nick. This was really great. Thank you. Thank oh, you. My pleasure. Thanks. Okay. Bye-bye. I mean, you know, Rich, let's, let's just think about that for a minute. There goes the marketing strategy. It's good to have people who challenge the assumptions of technology being a universal, perfect good for all. Well, I think great tech comes from thinking outside of tech. And also just working all that stuff through. Yes. You know, this is why you look at what happens in Silicon Valley and people come up with the same product over and over for their friends. It's a social network for guys who make over $200,000 a year and love cars. Right. So... It's important to, to sort of contextualize this stuff with a little bit of a little bit of, you know, sour in with the sweet. Without a doubt. So, thank you, Nick Carr, for coming on to Track Changes, the official podcast of Postlight. Postlight is a digital product studio at 101 Fifth Avenue in New York City. We build your apps, we build your websites, we build your big platforms responsibly. That's right, <laughs> and we're going to start thinking about ways to empower and avoid de-skilling in our users. We're taking that as a mission. <laughs> Rich, anything to add? Uh, no, but if you've got questions, email us at hello at postlight.com. Great address. We enjoy listening to what people have to say, and we'll respond on upcoming episodes. If you want to rank us, rate us, give us stars, uh, five if possible. Five preferred. Five preferred yes. on the iTunes podcast listing. You know how to get there. Thank you, listeners. Have a great week. We appreciate you. Don't lose your skills. (laughs) Stay sharp. Stay sharp. (laughs) Bye.